message from Valley Bible Fellowship. It is our sincere prayer that you're richly blessed through the ministry of the Word. For more information about VBF, visit our website at vbf.org. Good morning, VBF. Gosh, I'm like back there crying. I hadn't seen that video before. Isn't that amazing? My name's Nicole, and I am so thrilled to be with you guys this morning. If you've noticed, we are missing some people here at church this morning and at all of our campuses. You know why? 350 of our men are at men's retreat this weekend. Isn't that amazing? And right now, they are actually in their last session for the weekend. And so can we stop and pray over them right now? Lord God, we come before you, and we just pray right now over all the men that sit there to connect with you this weekend. We pray right now that your spirit will meet them at the exact point of their need. Lord, bring back the fire off that mountain into our homes here in Bakersfield. Bring them home safely. And Lord, bless this time we have together here this morning in church. In your name we pray, amen, amen. You know, there is something about a man that connects with Jesus. I always tell my husband when he like starts getting into the word, he's talking about what God is teaching him and he gets really excited. I'm like, that's attractive. And he's like, that's weird. And I'm like, I know that may be kind of weird, but that's the truth of it. There is something about a man that really connects with the Lord that you're like, that is so cool. When I was a little girl, I used to uh, walk out it way too early in the morning. My dad would go to work at like 5, 5.30, and I would come out of my bedroom at like 4.30 in the morning, and I see my dad face planted on the living room floor with his Bible wide open. And it wasn't just one time. Every single morning, I would get up, and I would see him, and that's where he was. If I was up at that time, that's where my dad was. And still to this day, 45 plus years later, he may not be face first anymore on the floor, but my dad is still getting up every morning and spend times with the Lord. And sometimes you ask that question, like, how do you do that for that many years? And he's told me the answer before, it keeps on working, so why would I stop? And it's true, right? But there's something about consistency. And for some of us, we look at that and go, how would somebody do that? Because we look at it and we go, I go through seasons of life when I don't feel like it. I go through seasons when God feels really close. I go through seasons when God feels really far, when God seems distant. And that's what I want to talk to you guys today about this idea of God seeming distant. And I want to put it in a perspective of eliminating the shame on when God feels distant. Only because I feel like I have walked with the Lord for 35 years and I have walked through seasons when God feels a little bit further away. It's what I do in those seasons that's so important. And not dwelling in the shame, but realizing that what I do and how I move forward is where it's, it's at. And so today, I want to talk about the book of Esther. And it's interesting because in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned. Praying is not mentioned. There's not any terminology related to what we see in the other books of the Bible with connecting with the Lord. So why is Esther so important? Why is it in the Bible? Well, I want to give us a little backstory on who these people were in Esther. You know that verse we put on all of our picture frames and everything on the wall, that Jeremiah 29, 11? 
It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We love that verse, but we never put Jeremiah 29.10 on any picture frame, the verse that comes before that, because it says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then it says, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet and he was coming to the Israelites who were in captivity and said, um, 70 more years, just a generation. You have to sit here and then once you're free, go back to Jerusalem, go back to Jerusalem. And then I have plans to prosper you, plans to, to give you a hope and a future. Well, everything that the prophet Jeremiah came to pass, 70 years from that moment, Cyrus the Great comes on the scene and he releases the Israelites from captivity. He says, go back to Jerusalem. But interesting enough, Oh, out of the 2 million Jews that were in captivity, only 60,000 went back to Jerusalem. Why? They could have gone back. They had a promise of hope and a future of prosperity if they would go back to Jerusalem, but they didn't. And some of us go, well, why wouldn't they? Well, there's probably many things. At this point, they had been in captivity for a generation. Some of them, they had established businesses. Their friends were there. Their family was there. This is all they knew. They only knew the exile. Another thought to think about is Susa, where Esther takes place in Babylon. It is a 16-hour car ride to Jerusalem right now. You guys want to try that by camel? <laughs> right? Like, it is months and months and months. So that's a really far way to go for a promise that some old man gave you 70 years ago from the Lord. So, so many never went back. And then Esther takes place 60 years from that moment that Cyrus the Great frees them. So now we have a hundred plus years of the Jews living in Babylon who never went back to Jerusalem. And they are living amongst the Babylonians. And Esther 2 verses 5 through 7 introduces our first character, it says in verse 5, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimea, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. And I know I mispronounced tons of those words, and I'm okay with that. Um, but with that, what this verse tells us, if you're like, that's just a, a wad of words, what this tells us is that Mordecai, Mordecai was a third-generation exile. He only knew exile. In fact, when we look at the time frame, probably his great-grandfather was probably a child, even when he was taken into, into captivity. He knew nothing else. He knew nothing about the priests and the temple and the body of Jewish believers. He knew nothing of that. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. We don't talk about Hadassah. Well, let me tell you why. Whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother, this young woman who was also known as Esther, that's what we call her, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Hadassah, Esther, why does she have two names? Well, let me tell you why. Because she lived two lives. She was both Jewish and Persian. Babylonian was in Persia. 
And there was this idea when, when the Jewish people were taken into captivity, the idea was to assimilate them, have them marry people, different people groups so that they no longer became a people group. But the way the Jewish people fought that through captivity is they said, no, we are going to make sure we only marry Jews so that we keep the lineage pure. And so they made sure that they understood who they were as Jewish people, giving them Jewish names. Nowadays, you know, we have all kinds of nationalities and ethnicities and all that in our blood. Have you ever done like the Ancestry.com or the 23andMe and you're like, I wonder what I'm a mix of, you know, like you're just kind of excited about it. I did it and uh, we got it back and my husband's like, this is really weird. And I said, well, why? And he said, because they can tell you what county you're from right outside of London in England. Like, why is that so precise? How crazy is that? I was like, yeah, that's really weird. And then this summer, that we t- I did that like a year and a half ago. This summer we went um, and we spent like a good two weeks just visiting family. Like the, you know, the vacation that you're just sitting on people's couches and you're talking and you're finding out all of this interesting history about yourself. And we went to my mom's side in Indiana and we were at the farm and all of her cousins and her aunts and her uncles came over. And then all of a sudden my, my mom's aunt and uncle said, yeah, we found out we were six cousins. And then my mom's cousin said, oh yeah, we were married for several years before we found out we were third cousins. And then my mom mentions her prom date and they, and they said, you know that was your second cousin, right? And I went home, we were staying at an Airbnb and my husband didn't come because he was working at the Airbnb and I went home from that farm and that family reunion and I, and I walked up to him and he was like, how was it? I said, you know how they can tell me exactly what county I am from England? I figured out why. <laughs> We kept the line pure, guys. We kept it pure. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing. Like, that's what the Jewish people did. It was a mindset that they really embraced. But they did not mold into society. But they did not stand out either. They kept their Babylonian names because they didn't want anybody to know that they were Jew. Now, everything changed the moment that the king kind of, um, you know, takes out his other wife. He's looking for a new wife. And Esther gets pulled into the palace because of her beauty. She goes through uh, a 12-month spa treatment. How many of ladies are like, sign me up? Uh, 12 months of spa treatment. She ends up winning the king's favor, and she ends up becoming queen, but not without a command from her uncle. Esther 2.10 says this, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, her uncle, had forbidden her to do so. I mean, life had changed for the better. They are now in wealth and prestige, and it would be a great fairy tale right there, but the truth of it is life is not fairy tales. And they are actually molded in as she marries a non-Jew, but they still are hiding who they truly, truly are. They are strangers in this world, hiding that they believe in the one true God. And I sometimes, I looked at the story and I said, well, isn't that us sometimes? How often do we hide who, they really, who we really are? Well, then you have to ask the question, who are you, right? If Mordecai and Esther, if we ask them this question, you're hiding who you are, well, who are you? Well, you are an Israelite. You are God's chosen people. You are the people that God chose to reveal his glory to. You are the ones that he ransomed from Egypt. You are the ones that he parted the Red Sea for. You are the ones that he dropped manna from heaven, a cloud by day, fire by night, welcomed into the promised land, won wars that you shouldn't have won. But for Mordecai and Esther, that was a really long time ago. 
That was a really, really long time ago. God was pretty distant to them. They had been away from the body of believers. They had been away from the temple of God for so long that God was distant. And I want to retrain this thought pattern about God being distant today. Oftentimes we think God seems distant when he forgets who we are. But what if it could be the other way? What if it has nothing to do with God forgetting about who you are because you are a child of God and he cannot forget your name? It says his, his name is tattooed on, your, on his hand. What if it's simply that we forget who we are? We forget who we are. And so we have to ask the question, who are you? Who are you? Well, how about Genesis 1, verses 27, that says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are the image of God. He created you. How about 1 John, verses 3, 1, that says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is who we are. You are a child of God. How about Ephesians 2.10 that says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are his masterpiece, and he has a plan for you. And we're not, I mean, it keeps going on and on. How about 1 Peter 2.9? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. You are chosen you are called by name out of darkness into relationship with him. That is who you are. And we could go through the scriptures all day. We could literally go through it all day saying who you are. You see, God does not forget about who you are. We forget who we are. We forget who we are. And Esther and Mordecai were willing to forget who they were for the pleasures of Babylonian for the prosperous life. They did not want to be Jew. They just didn't want people to know that they were Jew. We don't not want to go to VBF. We just don't want to put a VBF sticker on our car because then they're going to know we go to VBF. I mean, on Thanksgiving Day, we sit there and we're like, Lord, thank you for all of these blessings. You are so good to us. Look at all you've given us. And then the clock strikes midnight. And in the halls of Walmart, we become a crazed person going, give me more, give me more, give me more. Right? And I'm talking to myself right there, just so you know. Um, favorite holiday is Black Friday. But the reality of it is we cannot live two lives because there's a truth to this. We are somebody on Saturday night and somebody else on Sunday morning. Did you talk to your family differently this morning than you talked to the people as you walked into church and saw? Do the people at work know that you're a Christian or do you keep that secret because mm, I'm not ready for them to know that quite yet? We cannot live two lives because eventually one will always find us out. Always. And guess what? It happened for Mordecai and Esther too. Because it was just a moment, but this man named Haman comes on the scene and Haman's like one of those guys that you want to go boo every time you hear his name. He's a bad dude. And you know what? He comes into power and he loves the power and Mordecai won't bow. Everybody else wants to bow, but Mordecai won't. So he's like, I'm going to come figure out a way to wipe out the entire Jewish population. And so he goes to King Xerxes and he says, hey, there's a population of people that have a real problem with authority. And he convinces King Xerxes to wipe them entirely out. On April 17th, 
a decree was made with a king's signet ring, which is important. And let me tell you about this decree. It's in Esther 3, verses 13 through 14, and it says, Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so that they would be ready to do their duty on their appointed day. Their duty. You know what this tells us? King Xerxes and Haman didn't just like get an army. This had nothing to do with an army going out and killing the Jews. No, they were arming the citizens of Persia. It was their duty as a citizen to take out their fellow Jews. And remember, these are free people in their society. They are no longer in captivity. They are the people that they did business with. They were were people that their kids were in school together. And now they're saying, the king is saying, it's your duty. You better take them out on a certain day. Which, by the way, he issued this on April 17th. It was supposed to go into place on, um, on March 7th. So they are 11 months Their days are numbered. They literally know their expiration date. And when we put it in perspective of the Persian Empire, it said it went out to every area of the Persian Empire. At this point in history, it, and still to this day, is considered one of the largest empires in history. It spanned 3 million square miles and covered Asia, Africa, and Europe. Every Jew. Every Jew. And it's signed with a king's signet ring. Once that happens, you can't take it back. There's not like, oh, well, maybe we can change his mind. You can't take it back. Now, the Jews in Jerusalem were a little bit different. The ones that had obeyed God and the ones that went home. Why? Because he wasn't sending an army out. He was arming the fellow citizens. They were a community walled up of only Jews. So, yes, it affected them, but not really because who's going to come after them, right? Because everybody else with them is Jews. But... For the people that never went back home, for the people that lived all over Persia, that never obeyed the prophet Jeremiah, that God told Jeremiah to go home, they now knew when they were going to die. That's crazy to me. And we see Mordecai know the seriousness of this because he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he starts wailing and crying through the city. And Esther hears about what Mordecai is doing and she immediately sends him clothes. And you look at this and go, well, why would she do that? Well, to do put on sackcloth and ashes was a very Hebrew, very Jewish custom. And Esther is essentially saying, you are telling everybody you're a Jew. Everybody is going to know you're a Jew. What are you doing, Mordecai? What are you doing? But Mordecai refuses to put on the clothes. He is at the point where he is desperate. And he makes sure he sends a message back to Esther. And he basically says, telling her about the decree and that she has to go before the king. You have to do this. You have to. What else do we have? Esther sends a message back and says, "Um, do you not know what you're asking of me? Because if I go before the king and he doesn't put down his royal scepter, they'll take me out and kill me. And by the way, you know what happened to the first wife, right? Like she's basically saying, "You're, you're asking me to die. You understand the seriousness. And then she goes, and by the way, he hasn't even asked for me for 30 days. And Mordecai is is sitting there and and you see this conversation going back and forth between the two of them. And you go, well, this would be a really good place to mention God. This would be a really good place to be like, and they cried out to the Lord. Oh, they prayed. 
But here's the truth. They were so out of practice, God seemed so distant to them that they didn't even know how to get back. This is what distance looks like. It looks like a gradual procession. About a year ago, we went to Disneyland, and we decided to do downtown Disney the night before. And my littlest guy, who was a very independent spirit, bless his heart, is like, I don't need to hold your hand, Mom. I got this. You need to hold my hand, son. This is a crazy place. There's crowds. I don't need to hold your hand. He is being outright defiant. Um, I know your kids are never that way, but mine can be. And so we walked out of the restaurant at downtown Disney. Now it is night and it is dark and it is crowds as the parks are, are, everybody's exiting the park. And I'm trying to hold his hand. And he's like, I got your purse. I got your purse. I'm like, okay. And we're just trying to get to the other side. I'm like, okay, he's with me. Of course, we get to the other side and he's not with me. He, he's gone. And, and so my husband and my daughter and her friend, and we all look at each other and we're like, we all literally go, where's Zion? And we all part the Red Sea trying to find him, leaving the other one kid, which probably wasn't smart. So then we all come back and we're like, wait, somebody's got to stay with the kid that actually held onto our hand. So, you know, then we divide up and it's 10 minutes. And you know that 10 minutes of torture where you can't find your child? And of course we find him, downtown Disney, like security guards got him and he's crying and he comes running up to me and, and he looks at me and he said, I, I don't want to not be special. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, if I lose you, I'm not special. And I was like, okay, well, I'm glad that that's, that means something to you. But I will tell you this, he learned a lesson. He learned a lesson that he needed to be touching me in the chaos of the, of the day in order to not lose me. And there is something to that, right? Because sometimes we get really comfortable with God. And we just are like, Lord, I don't need to touch you today. I don't need to touch you. I mean, we haven't touched in a while, but it's okay. I can walk beside you and things will be good. And then all of a sudden in the chaos of the day, we do the same thing my son did. And we start thinking we're, we're following God, but we start following this random thing over here. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves so far away from God and we go, how did we get here? How did we get here? Right? And you don't know how to get back. And so we have to be touching. We have to be touching. Needless to say, the next day at Disney World, I had no problem convincing my son to hold my hand the entire day. Um, it was a good lesson to learn. And what we see with Mordecai is he has a desperation to get back with God. He has a desperation, but he's not sure what to do. And often in dire circumstances, we pick up where we left off. We went to where we found something. And that's exactly what Mordecai is doing. He's putting on the sackcloth and ashes because he's going back to where you connected with the Lord. We return to the same motions because we want to find what we have lost. I mean, it's kind of like putting on that worn out pair of exercise pants that you have never sweat in a day in your life to go run, run to Target, Right? The truth of it is, is sometimes we do stuff to make us feel like we're doing something that we're not really doing, right? And Mordecai was done pretending. He was desperate for God to move, but he was still not crying or praying out to the Lord. And I want to give you some points today, some practical points on the moments where God seems distant, what we are supposed to do out of the book of Esther. And the first one is this, we need to remember who God is. You see, Mordecai went back to the sackcloth and ashes because he remembered sackcloth and ashes reminds him of who God was and it also was an act of showing God repentance when you wore the sackcloth and ashes. There's no talk of God. There doesn't seem to be any heart transformation we see right here, but we know that he is at least, this is what he's doing. He's saying, I got a problem. I've got a problem. What do they say the first step of AA is, right? 
admit you have a problem. Sometimes we need to be able to look around and see if we see God and go, I have a problem. It doesn't solve the problem putting on the sackcloth and ashes, but it admits we have a problem because we remember who God is. And when we remember who God is, remember the problem is not God's. The problem is ours. And being able to admit we have a problem is a huge piece of that. But he's made sure Esther knew that the problem wasn't just his, okay? Because in Esther 4.13, verses 14, it says, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. I love this verse. Let me tell you what Mordecai is doing right here. And the second thing we need to do if we find that God is distant, he is looking for his fingerprints. He is looking for God's fingerprints. He's basically saying here, hey, God wouldn't do all that stuff and save us from Egypt and and ransom us and part the Red Sea and do all this stuff just to kill us now. God, that's not who God was, so that's not who God's going to be. And then he's looking at Esther and he's saying, oh, now my, maybe, maybe, maybe Esther, maybe God puts you in that place for this moment in time. And, and if you choose not to, I, maybe he'll use something else or somebody else because that's the way my God works. Mordecai is looking for the fingerprints of God. And you guys, we will have dire circumstances in life. And I can't tell you whether they are brought on by our enemy, whether God brings them on or allows them to happen, or whether they are just simply life. But I know in all three of those instances that the fingerprints of God can be found. They truly can be found. But you have to look for them. My kids have been in school for a week and a half, and I can't tell you how many times I've said, look with your eyes as we're running out to get in the car to take them to school. And you guys, we keep things really simple in my house. I try to set things out the night before because we never get up in time. And so I'm like, I got to prepare. We have one shoe basket in our house, just one. We keep, like I said, real simple. And I'm like, get on your shoes. Get on your shoes. I have already buckled up my five-year-old in his seat and looked down at his feet, and he has no shoes. And I'm like, what were you thinking? I could not find them. What do you mean you couldn't find them? I looked everywhere. So I run in the house and you guys, they were not in the shoe basket. They were sitting right beside the shoe basket. (laughs) And my kids can't find anything unless it's exactly where it's supposed to be. And I think about that in my walk with the Lord because a lot of times I look for his fingerprints at exactly where I want them. And if I don't see him, see them, I think I can't find him. And God's going, look with your eyes. Look with your eyes. Look other places because I could be doing all kinds of stuff. Look for the fingerprints of God. It may not be exactly where you think it's going to be. Look everywhere. Well, the story goes on that Esther steps out and she goes before the king and through a series of events we don't have time to go in through today, she's granted favor and she saves her people. You're just going to have to go read the book. Uh, but the, the, the fourth point I want to bring out to you today, or sorry, the third one, is when God seems distant, we need to step out. Esther had to step out. Esther had to go before the king even though it was a risk on her own life. And God will always require us to step out. Always require us to step out. And for many of us, when God seems distant, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where most of us stop. 
because this takes an actual act on our part. When I pray over my kids, I pray boldness and courage over them every single night without fail. Why? Because I know the enemy's main tactics in the future for every single one of us, including my children, is to paralyze them. To paralyze them with, I can't, it won't work, what will they think about me, it doesn't matter that much, it's always going to be this way. And that is what the enemy will paralyze, and you have to fight that with boldness and courage and step out. So when God seems distant, you show up at church. When God seems distant, you go join that Bible study. When God seems distant, you go to that men's retreat. When God seems distant, go to that Christian friend who can walk through this with you and help you find him again. When God seems distant, take a step. And I promise you he's going to meet you. And I'm not talking about like take a step and be like, all right, Lord, let's go, let's go. You know, we live in that society where it's like if it says on the directions, you know, wait five minutes to cool, we're like, <laughs> no. You know, we just, we dive in right there and we burn our mouth and then we can't even enjoy the food, right? That is how we live. We are so impatient. No, step out an expectation for God to meet you, but step out with patience because we're not trying to go from zero to 100 overnight. We're not here for the short bursts of Jesus. We are here for the long haul, the long haul. So be patient on the Lord. Step out. Hey, I have this whole thing called Mighty Women Gathering starting September 6th. Short plug announcement. Um, we're going through the book of Esther. And if you think we've gone through the book of Esther today, you just wait. We're going to go through it one chapter a month. First Tuesday of the month, I have a 9.30 a.m. I have a 6 p.m. Both gatherings, same exact thing. September 6th, worship. I'll feed you. Uh, we'll do worship together. And then we're going to get into the word. We're going to get into the word. Last year, we had 200 women pack out our Northwest. This year, let's pack it out in the morning and let's pack it out in the night. Let's get into the word. Let's find community. But if that's not for you, I got, we have small groups. We got ministry groups. Hey, by the way, women, we're going on our own retreat in November. Um, but you have to go to VBF Women. It's really easy to remember, vbfwomen.com. And I have everything there. Find a way. Step out. Let's get you plugged in. So Esther saved her people, but they couldn't take back that law. So what are they going to do? I mean, it was signed with the king's signet ring. So instead, they flipped the law. And so they basically said, hey, here's what we're going to do. On that same day of March 7th, now the Jewish people can now defend themselves. And by the way, if they, if they defeat any of the Babylonian people or the Persian people, guess what? They take their stuff. And we actually see that with these tables flipped on the same day that they had to do something. And this is a, when God seems distant, we fight. We fight. And we live this cushion life. So if we feel like we have to fight, we're like, oh, maybe God's further away than I thought. Oh, no. When I read the Bible, I see something totally different. I see people fighting for what they believe in. They fight. They fight like their life depends on it. Because you know what? When we fight to, to get closer to the Lord, our life does depend on it. Our future depends on it. They fought, these Jewish people fought with a spirit of expectation. And guess what? They won their battle. They won their battle. And you know what? I think this tells me one of the things. They were not where they should have been. But God still showed them his mercy and his faithfulness. And there is something to that. You see, it didn't keep them from the battle. It gave them hope in the middle of the battle. God does not keep us from the battle. He gives us hope in the middle of the battle. And we will have to battle. We want to be like the disciples, but none of us want to die for our faith like the disciples. 
There is a battle. There is a battle. And we have to acknowledge that there's an enemy out there to steal, kill, and destroy. And you can't say, I'm not going to engage in the battle because guess what? You just gave him permission to win. Instead, we say, I'm going to engage in the battle and I don't feel like it, but Lord, I'm going to show up today. Lord, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to get into my word. I don't feel like it, but Lord, I know that if I continue to step out and I fight the lies of the enemy that exist in my head, that you will be victorious. Here's the deal. We fight when God is distant with everything in us. Do you know why? Because he's not just after you. He's after your home, he's after your friends, he's after your spouse, he's after your kids, he's after your coworkers, he's after your future. And so you fight. We wake ourselves up and we fight because we are in a battle. But before we close today, I wanna give you additional view of this story that's not mentioned in the Bible, but we know exists, is let's talk about these Jews that were in Jerusalem. The ones that actually went back, the ones that followed the commands. Because by the way, you know that edict went to them too. They knew everything going on with their fellow Jews. And this is a Jewish community where wherever your Jews are, they are family. They are family to you. And now dire circumstances are happening to your family. And I can guarantee it, guys, that Mordecai didn't do it right. He put on his sackcloth, but he never prayed. He never went to God. But I can guarantee that these fellow Jews who were in, had the temple, who were part of the presence of the Lord, who had the priest to guide them, that they did it right upon their behalf. They were praying for their Jewish brothers and sisters that were in dire circumstances. And I sit back there, and I never want my family to go through dire circumstances, because I don't know about you guys, but it hurts the same as if I was going through it. It hurts. It hits the core of who we are. But what if those dire circumstances are God's way of bringing them back to him? What if? What if? And I have to sit there and we go, I cannot be their savior. Only God can. And some of us are sitting here today and we're hearing about this idea of God is distant and, and where hearts are aching because we're praying over somebody whose God seems very distant to them. And they're God's prodigal sons and daughters and we're hurting going, oh, I wish they could just walk these steps to get closer to the Lord. And I have to tell you, you are not alone. That God hurts for them too that he hears your request. And I don't want you for a second to discredit the prayer that you pray for your family, your loved ones that are far from the Lord, because God hears it. He hears it. But I also want you to hear something today, that you cannot save them from those dire circumstances unless completely directed by God himself, because you could keep God from getting to the core of their heart. And oftentimes when our family starts doubting God and God feels distance, it's so easy to go, I'm going to slip him $100 and tell him God told me to give it to him. So that way, like, God looks really good because it's just not showing up. Can I tell you, you don't need to make God look good. You don't need to make God look good. He's God. He's got it. And sometimes he's taking somebody down to bare bones because he knows that's the point that they find him. That's the point that they find him. We cannot be their savior. Only God can, but man, can we pray. God was not absent from the book of Esther. He wasn't just around or close by. No, when we dig into the book of Esther, we find that God is everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. He didn't leave them. He didn't forsake them. 
He was right there. Never give up on bringing your loved one to Jesus because he will be faithful and he will hear and he will be all over them even if they're where they're not supposed to be. Now, as we close today, I feel like the Lord has laid on my heart. If you have a loved one who is distant from God, we want to pray with you. We want to bring them to Jesus with you because we understand the hurt. We understand the pain. And if that is you today, would you please stand? Not because we think that by standing on behalf of them that they're going to, you know, we're forcing Jesus on them. No, it's this free will thing. We can't do that. But what we can do is join as a community and pray for those that are distant from God, that God would get a hold of their hearts as a church family. Now, I'm going to ask you at all of our campuses that are standing on behalf of that, I'm going to ask you to remain standing. Because there are some of us here today that somebody is standing because of you. Somebody is standing because God has been really distant to you. And I'm not talking about, like it could be like just this last month you've looked around and said, I don't, I don't feel him. I don't see him. Maybe it's been years and you're like, I'm here at church, but I just don't know where he's at. If you are ready to say, hey, I'm willing to admit that there's a problem, that God is distant, I'm, I'm willing to start looking for where he is. I'm willing to step out and I, I'm ready to fight. If that is you today, I'm gonna to ask you to stand with those that are standing on behalf of others. Thank you. God is good. Guys, it's not easy cruising from here on out. This is where we battle. This is where we fight. This is where we show up and we say, Lord, my life depends on walking in int with intimacy with you. My family depends on it. There's one verse I wanna say over you guys before we close. Please stay standing because we're gonna pray in just a second, but it's Deuteronomy 31 verse six and it says, so be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not panic before them for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. Be strong and courageous because he will not fail you or abandon you. So here it goes, when God seems distant, he isn't. He isn't. If you are sitting, I'm going to ask you to kind of stretch your arms out like this on the people around you because we are going to pray over our body of church today and all of our campuses. Lord God, we come before you. We give you our lives. Lord, we beg for you to be close, not only to us, but the people we love. Lord God, move and show up. And all of these lives represented here today and those that we stand for, Lord God, I ask that your spirit would be so close, that that God hug would be so real, that the fingerprints will be so evident. And Lord, as we have barricaded our hearts and kind of put up this, oh Lord, I don't know where you are. Do you really love me? That we would remember who we are in you, who we are. Remind us though we are child of the, of the living King who adores us. Our name is written on his hands and he will never leave us or forsake us. And all we have to do is reach out and touch him. We love you, Lord God. We give you this time. We give you this. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's going to be prayer people up here if you'd like to come up and get some additional prayer. Have a great Sunday, guys. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message has ministered to your heart. If you don't already have a church you call home, we invite you to join us at Valley Bible Fellowship for worship, Bible study, fellowship, and more. We're at 2300 East Brundage Lane in Bakersfield, California, near Mount Vernon and Freeway 58. Reach us by phone at 661-325-2251 or visit our website at vbf.org. Here is our King, here is our love.